This is Rob Hendrickson uh, and the talks crew at the Oregon Poison Center. And today we're going to do a journal club on caustic ingestions. Um, so just a little bit of background. You know, we know caustic ingestions, some are uh, alkali with a high pH, some are acid. The alkali causes liquefactive necrosis and the acid causes coagulative necrosis. And the caustic injuries come in a couple of varieties. It's uh, often suicidal in teenagers and adults and um, uh, exploratory in younger kids and sort of the two to four age group. Um, and it causes an initial caustic injury to the mouth and esophagus and stomach. And then the big concern is that in some of these cases, and we're going to learn a lot more about this in the journal and the articles to come, um, the inflammation is so much that you get um, stricture formation in the esophagus, leading to either the need for dilations or even surgery in the long run. So um, <clears throat> the first article is called Hazard to Health Liquid Lye. Very, very interesting 1971 New England Journal article uh, authored by someone named Lucian Leap. And um, Lucian Leap, this is like the first half of his career. The second half, um, and some of you may have heard of him, he uh, started off as a ped surgeon um, and really was um, uh, uh, integral to that field. He was a founding member of the American Pediatric Surgical Association, um, spent first half of his career studying caustic injuries and things like TPN in kids, but then kind of switched career, um, mid-career, and then in 1994, he published an article called Error in Medicine in JAMA. It was a very, very famous article and uh, led uh, to the founding of the National Patient Safety Foundation um, and really uh, committed um, much of the rest of his career to the application of systems theory for uh, medical error reduction So, and was sort of integral in the IOM report called To Err is Human, which really sh uh, shined a light on medical errors in American medicine. So uh, kind of interesting where he's ended up, but this is where he started, 1971. Um, this article has to do with liquid lye, lye is sodium hydroxide, and up until this point, up until the uh, early 1970s, most of the lye ingestions were granules, um, which tend to stick to surfaces, but also don't tend to get absorbed very quickly into surfaces. So um, they were concerned, and this the reason why they wrote this article, is they were concerned about this new threat uh, that was liquid lye. They estimated about 5,000 at that point, 5,000 kids per year had accidental ingestions of caustic agents. Um, and what they noticed was this, this new product called Liquid Plumber, uh, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of funny to think now that that was a brand new product um, because I think you know it's in every store in the country, I feel like. Um, this new product, they saw seven patients and they felt like their injuries were much worse than historically uh, they had been seeing. So they kind of looked back over a two-year period, 68 to 1970, and they found... Um, seven patients who had ingested liquid plumber and as opposed to the granular forms where a small maybe 10 or 15 percent of the strictures 100 percent all seven patients had esophageal burns all of them got strictures all of them required colonic replacement of their esophagus so one of them 
this is amazing was actually uh, the ingestion was of a discarded cap. That's how small these these were minute ingestions. They had discarded the cap, and the kid licked and you know sucked the liquid out of the cap uh, and got a stricture in their esophagus. So pretty impressive change in the world of caustic ingestions. Now, liquid plumber has a pH of about 13 at sodium hydroxide. And one thing to note is back then, liquid plumber was 30% sodium hydroxide. Some of the articles we read today were integral to making, and a lot of pressure from the medical uh, field were um, made the limitation on the percentage of sodium hydroxide in these products. So now most of them are 3 to 7%. But the difference between liquid plumber and the previous things is there's liquid, not a granule. Liquid seems to penetrate tissues more rapidly. Um, and it also has a high viscosity, so it's not like water. It doesn't just flow right down the esophagus. It does cling to surfaces a bit more and flows uh, a little bit slower. So what they noted was that these seven patients had very, very severe esophageal injuries based with these really, really minute uh, uh, ingestions. So the, what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at why. So the first thing they did is they thought, let's look at what the dose needs to be to injure the esophagus. So they did a study on cats, and cats have a uh, esophagus that is uh, very closely related to uh, humans. Um, and they took four cats, injected one milliliter into three of their esophagi, if that's a word, Three milliliters into one of them, uh, one of the uh, uh, oh, cats, I was going to say patients, not quite. Um, all four of them died. All four had significant esophageal injury and mediastinitis. So one milliliter in a cat, and all of them died. Pretty impressive. The next step was looking duration of contact. They took one milliliter, bless you, or five milliliters. And then at three, five, or ten seconds, they flushed the esophagus with acetic acid to neutralize. And they did the math and figured out exactly how much acetic acid would take to neutralize that much um, alkali. And um, they looked at 11 cats. If they used five milliliters, all of them died no matter how quickly you washed it off. So even if you washed it off within three seconds, they all died. They all had severe esophageal injury. So forget about the five mils because everyone dies. Look at the one milliliter. If you washed it off in three seconds, one of the cats, out of the three cats, one of them had severe esophageal injury and one of them had a moderate stricture. So, um, and one out of three died. So with one milliliter, the mortality was 33%. Even if you washed it off in three seconds, mortality was 33%. And the sig significant esophageal injury is 67%. And if you washed it off in five seconds, uh, s two of the three died, so 67% mortality. And both of those had very severe esophageal injuries. So what suggesting that you can have injury within seconds and that there is probably not an intervention unless you can get something in the first under three seconds, for example, that it's going to prevent even a one mil uh, exposure to um, this lie causing injury. So they wanted to look at histologic changes. Um, they did two different groups. 
Um, and one of them, they did a surgical uh, exposure of the esophagus and put in lye-soaked pledgets. And the other one they put in, they did it endoscopically. Um, they flushed them with water at 1, 3, 5, and 10 seconds in the first group. And then the second one, they flushed with acetic acid and did an autopsy at 24 hours. What it really came down to is um, even the cats that had one second of exposure followed by water flushing at one second got swelling in the crystal of the epithelium, significant inflammatory reaction, and widespread thrombosis <clears throat> on histology. So, again, a one second exposure followed by flushing with water, and they still had significant injury. So, um, what do we take home from this? Well, I think historically speaking, you know, this is um, a big change in the world of caustics from granules to liquid. It does seem that the high concentration liquid alkali can cause significant injury, even within a second, even with flushing with water or acetic acid within one second time. Um, so what their conclusions really are, are that we should not in any way focus on an intervention that will help because nothing will help. The only answer here is prevention. Uh, and they actually say clearly the best solution is to remove the hazard by making the product unavailable, period. Uh, and later they were successful in doing that. The 30% sodium hydroxide was um, uh, then reduced to about 5%. So um, hopefully increasing the amount of time that is necessary to cause a caustic injury. So um, one of the questions that comes up here is why is this so different in liquid plumber? It has a pH of 13, <clears throat> which is a very high pH. Uh, and to look into the question a little bit more, um, while well, Jen Stefani, the second-year fellow, talk about uh, what pH level can cause injury. Yeah, so um, this article is called The Critical pH Level of Lye for Esophageal Injury. Um, it's published in 2009. This is an animal model, so it's a rabbit model. Um, essentially, what they did is they took rabbit esophagi <laughs> and <Thank you>. uh, <laughs> um, did a various a variety of different um, tests. Um, what they did is they looked at morphology uh, with light microscopy, electron microscopy. They also looked at permeability measurements um, and some various um, electrical types of studies in the in the um, esophagi as well. Um, so what they did is they had um, male rabbits and they um, were killed with uh, pentobarb, and then their eso the esophagus was actually excised from the animal. So this is you know the esophagus, but it's not in a living animal, so that's important to remember. Um, so they did a variety of different um, preparations to the esophagus and print, uh, uh, put it on a, a various, pinned it to like a, a thing where they did all of their tests. Um, and what they, what they looked for was potential difference, um, short circuit current, and resistance. Um, and then they also did some electrical um, types of studies with... Um, Looking, looking at the permeability with um, dextrin, various dextran solutions and things like that. Um, so they essentially what they did is they bathed the esophagus in various solutions um, and they titrated different um, sodium hydroxide concentrations to increase the pH in a stepwise fashion, looking at pHs anywhere from 7.4 to 12.1 at 20-minute intervals. Um, 
for about for an hour and a half. So um, they had various um, times and various pHs that they looked at. Um, so what what they found? Um, just jump to the results. Um, First, uh, the, the first important finding is that um, noteworthy mucosal um, pH of less than 11.5 had no effect on um, the current resistance or the potential difference. Um, however, when it was uh, increased to above 11.5, there uh, were significant increases, abrupt, abrupt, abrupt significant increases in um, the, both the resistance and the current. I'm sorry, the current increased and the resistance decreased. Um, so at, at a pH of 11.5 at 20 minutes, um, the uh, potential difference had risen about 55%, while the uh, resistance had fallen about, by about 57%. So really, they didn't see much change um, until 11.5, and then they saw a change in both resistance and potential difference. Um, when they upped the pH to 12, um, the, uh, it, essentially, there was more of an effect, and it was more drastic. And it was also in a time-dependent manner, so it happened faster and it was more dramatic. Um, they did a fixed concentration of sodium hydroxide um, to the mucosal solution. Um, and then in, in a different, in a different um, situation to achieve pH of 6.8, I'm sorry, 8.6, 11.7, and 12.1. And then what they did is they took another tissue from the same animal um, in the same solution um, to, to act as a control. Um, and then they adjusted the, the pH. So from that, what they found, um, each selected pH represented either um, a non-damaging pH, which they did 8.6, a pH at the threshold for damage based on what they had already done, which was they picked 11.7 and then at 12.1. Uh, um, and they actually continued the exposure in this for 90 minutes. Um, and then after the, so they were all, this one was all at a fixed amount of time. And what they found was at a pH of 8.6, there was no effect on the potential difference or, or resistance um, and it, compared to the control. Um, but at 11.7 and 12.1, there was damage to the epithelium um, by their electrical parameters. So at 11.7, um, there was a, a biphasic pattern in the, the um, potential difference. And then, so that increased over 15 minutes and then declined over 75 minutes. And again, at 12.1, so at a higher pH, it was the same kind of pattern. It's just more, um, it was just over a shorter period of time, it was more drastic. Um, the next interesting thing was um, they looked at electrical parameters. Um, uh, they looked in, in in doing this, they looked at the morphology of the tissues at 90 minutes um, and found on, on morphology um, marked liquefactive necrosis at pHs of 11.7 and 12.1, but no damage at, at um, 8.6, similarly to the electrical studies. Um, and then interestingly, um, the pH of the 11.7 sample produced li liquefaction necrosis that penetrated the luminal surface to the mid layers of the esophageal epithelium. Um, and then those that were exposed to the 12.1 solution um, actually had transmural liquefaction necrosis and ulcer ulceration. So again, it seems around like 11.5 to 11.7 is where you start seeing injury, but as you increase the pH above that, you get even more drastic effect. 
And then the so, um, next thing they looked at was the esophageal permeability. Um, again, they did some transepithelial fluxes with labeled dextran. Um, and they did, again, pH of 8.6, 11.7, or 12.1 for 30 minutes. Um, so, again, exposure to pH above 11.5, or to pH 11.5 resulted in both time and pH-dependent increases in flux, um, representing an increase in the permeability. And then um, at the exposure to 12.1, it increased um, uh, even more, 167-fold over control. So definitely increased permeability um, in the esophageal tissue at high pHs. Um, and then the, the next uh, section um, they talk about, essentially they were trying to answer the question, is this because of the pH or is it because these solutions are actually hyperosmolar? So um, if you expose something to a very um, hyper, uh, a solution with, with a high hyperosmolality, um, that's going to potentially induce injury as well. So they wanted to make sure that they tease that out, whether it was actually the pH or the osmo os osmolarity. Um, and uh, so what they did is um, when the, the, esophag uh, the esophageal epithelium was exposed to sodium hydroxide at 12.1, they also exposed the tissue um, to something that was more hypertonic than the control. Um, so it was 488 milliosmoles versus 288 um, for controls. Um, and then the effects, again, on electrical current um, were, were tested to make sure that there was no difference. So what they found in, um, there, there's a decline in, in resistance. Um, it, the decline in resistance in the, the um, hyperosmolar, hyperosmolar solution was modest and plateaued after 15 minutes, but the decline in the, the sodium hydroxide solution was marked and continued to progress. So essentially they concluded that the osmolarity um, of the solution might contribute to some of the effects, but it's, it's most likely the alkalinity that produces the, the significant effects. Um, and then they, the last section before they get into the discussion was the mechanism of why injury to the um, esophageal epithelium. So they um, did a couple of things. They actually treated the solution, the, the tissues with lobbying um, to, to abolish active ion transport um, and did a, a variety of these tests. And, um, and essentially what they concluded that they thought that the majority of the rise and the, the potential difference in the um, current in the lye exposed tissues was due to the active uh, translator sodium transport rather than passive diffusion. So the thought is that you're interrupting the active transport of sodium and that could potentially cause um, some of the problem. So in their discussion, they talked about um, how rabid, rabid esophagus is apparently a good model for human esophagus because it has similar epithelium. Um, but there is a, one difference in between rabbit and, and human esophagus and that um, the, um, the rabbit lack, lacks submucosal glands. So that could potentially have some um, limitations in, in uh, converting this data into humans. Um, so overall, essentially what they found was um, that at a pH of 11.5 is when you really start to see you know, when you really look really closely at the epithelium, you start seeing effects, and as you increase the pH past that, you just see 
faster and more severe effects. And about and at twelve point one is is when they saw you know com essentially complete liquefactive coagulation of the whole esophagus the, through all the, the transmural um, through the epithelium. Yeah, so it seems to shed a little bit of light on the early injury with sodium increased sodium flux, and then also I think. To some extent, you can use these pH numbers as, you know, someone who ingests something, obviously, depending on the concentration and the volume and things like that. But under a pH of 11 would be less likely to cause caustic injury. If you find out that the pH is 13, you should be very concerned, much more so than a lower pH. So, so I think that's helpful. It's one of the tools we can use to kind of predict esophageal injury. Um, and on that note, uh, why don't we have uh, uh, Michaela Sakamura, our EM resident, review her paper on other signs, actually, take it back, symptoms. Signs and symptoms. Signs That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, that we can use to predict who will have an esophageal injury. Yeah, so um, this paper is in, uh, initial symptoms as predictors of esophageal injury in alkaline corrosive ingestions by Foreman et al., uh, published back in 92. Um, they went ahead and looked at this because there's a couple papers uh, by Crane et al. published in 84 that found that vomiting, drooling, and strider um, were a predictive of serious injury. Uh, this is a prospective study, but it was only um, performed uh, study children, uh, no suicide or adult attempts in their um, cohort. And then uh, another study that was by Galdra et al. back in 83 that found that no individual or group of clinical signs or symptoms was able to distinguish between those patients, and they found that um, patients without initial signs or symptoms, some had significant burns, but this was a retrospective study, and therefore has its flaws. So they wanted to kind of um, try and resolve those differences between those two major studies that were regarding this. So their main goals of this were three main objectives. One was to identify the specific clinical signs and symptoms that follow the ingestion of um, alkaline corrosives. Two was to determine if those uh, initial signs and symptoms could be predictive of significant injury. And uh, third objective was to determine if this presenting sign or symptom could um, effectively be used to identify patients that need to have an esophagoscopy or to evaluate their uh, degree of injury. So uh, the method for this study was a two-year prospective study. It was performed in seven poison control centers across the country to uh, both allow a large number of cases and to um, minimizing the effects of potential regional variation between the few uh, the regions of the country. Um, all seven participated in the first year, but only uh, the first four, or four of them participated in the second year. Um, and then their patient selection was based on um, a history of alkaline corrosive ingestion, and the products had to have a pH of greater than 12, which as Jen just talked about, is significant, you know, definitely caustic enough to cause some severe injury. Um, they excluded from the study any patients with a history of ingestion of acids, um, automatic dishwasher detergents, clinic, clinic test tablets, and household strength ammonia solutions. Um, to collect the data, they used two instruments. The first was the standard American Association of Poison Control Centers report form, which includes like all the patient basic demographics as well as intent, location of ingestion, and therapeutic interventions and their clinical outcomes. And then they also provided them with a supplementary um, data collection form with uh, focus on the this, this initial symptoms um, to uh, collect for each of the patients along the way. The um, symptoms that were on that secondary form um, uh, were 
documented as refusal to swallow, nausea, vomiting, drooling, coughing, abdominal pain, dysphagia, stridor, or oral burns. Um, they didn't talk about severity at all in that form. It was a dichotomous yes or no. And if um, one data point was not, couldn't be elicited, then they just kind of pull it out of the data as null. Um, and then they also requested any and all esophagoscopy reports that followed these patients that they initially were at in their cohort. Um, the uh, esophagoscopy reports were reviewed and then graded based on kind of some standard grading. So first-degree burns were called uh, if they had mucosal hyperemia and um, some edema or superficial desquamation. Second-degree burns were... Um, Slumping of mucosa with hemorrhages, exudates, ulcerations through to the submucosa, and then the third degree burns um, would, would be those that had slumping of tissues, deep ulcerations, or um, signs of necrosis. And they counted a positive esophagoscopy as having a second or third degree burn, and negative would be anything with a clean esophagoscopy or uh, just a first degree burn. So they um, broke down these symptoms um, and compared those to the esophagoscopy reports. Um, they broke down the signs and symptoms then and kind of treated those like they were the tests and then the esophagoscopy reports as the clinical outcome or as the result of the test. So they could evaluate them based on specific, uh, sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive values and kind of see if there was a correlation between those initial symptoms and signs with the um, severity of the esophagoscopy reports. Um, so for the results, they um, originally gathered 403 cases, uh, 33 were excluded based on inclusion criteria, and then a handful didn't have a form or didn't have any follow-up. So totally of their cases studied, they had 336 cases, 88 of which had esophagoscopy performed. Um, the age of patients ranged everywhere from 3 months to 80 years old. Uh, the mean of patients who did have the esophagoscopy was a little older, 13.9 um, years, and the mean uh, the patients who did not have an esophagoscopy was younger in the 6.3 years, which correlates with the potential intention versus kind of the accidental um, intake. Um, the um, overall results, they said the, the reason for ingestion was accidental in 85% uh, of cases overall, and um, suicidal in 9.8% of cases, misuse in 1.8, occupational in 0.9, and then a handful of intentional misuse and unknown. Um, and the patients, the patients who did have a uh, scope done, the um, uh, reasons for ingestion were accidental in 69%, which is few, and then suicidal in 23%, and then a handful of the other misuse and accidental unknowns. So, um, the clinical signs and symptoms that they did find were most frequently associated and more frequently encountered in patients who had an alkaline corrosive were um, oral burns, abdominal pain, oral burns in 41%, abdominal pain in 34%, vomiting in 19%, and drooling in 19%. Um, in patients who didn't end up having the scope performed, they had a mean of 1.2 symptoms uh, reported based on that uh, secondary collection form. And those patients who did have a scope form, there's a mean of exactly three symptoms reported. And in patients who had a uh, scope performed with positive results, meaning they had secondary third degree burns, they reported a mean of 4.3 symptoms. Um, the, uh, let's see. So, um, of the, uh, 88% esophagoscopies performed, they were able to get reports on 72% of those cases. And of those, uh, uh, so 63 of those 88, they got reports on, and of those 63, there was 18 positive, um, 
reports with and 45 negative reports. So overall, 28% of the scope reports they got were uh, deemed positive. And um, so then they took it and they could analyze the and see if there was initial symptoms or signs that could be potentially predictive of these esophageal injuries. Um, and all the initial signs and symptoms are reported in Table 3, whether they're present or negative and whether or not they have the esophagoscopy. Um, the five individual signs and symptoms that they found with the highest sensitivity were oral burns, vomiting, abdominal pain, um, and dysphagia and drooling. And they were examined then to see if they could predict any significant esophageal injury. This, and then they also broke down these um, signs and symptoms into groups of four to see if they could kind of come up with a collection rule or like a subgrouping to see if there was any way to predict a positive esophageal injury. Um, they, what they found, though, was that no group of signs or symptoms could um, identify every single patient with a potentially serious esophageal burn. Um, and then they also kind of looked back at that crane study um, to see if they could get those three um, symptoms that they had, that crane study reported, the vomiting, drilling, and strider, to see if they were um, predictive in this case. And applied to the data set that they were able to obtain, they were um, not absolutely predictive of the serious injury. Um, and they, neither were they um, sensitive or specific for serious injury. Uh, <clears throat> uh, they did find, though, that the suicidal patients, so they looked at the intention side of things with their patient subset, and suicidal patients were more likely to suffer a significant esophageal injury. Of those 33 suicidal patients that they had scopes on, uh, of those 33 initial suicidal patients, 21 had a scope done, and 15 of those scopes uh, reports were received. And of those 15 scopes, eight were positive, um, and so that may records a 53% rate of the positive esophagoscopy score in suicidal patients. And if you pull the you know, suicidal patients out of the overall group, that's only 20.8% were positive in non-intentional or suicidal intentions uh, for the ingestion. Um, so overall, they made up less than, suicidal patients made up less than 10% of the entire data set. Um, and they account for even a, for only less than a quarter of the patients who had a scope done, but they did account for 44% of all the positive scopes. So going on to the discussion, um, the, there's a variety of signs and symptoms that can be reported or be found in um, people, who, or people who have an um, alkaline corrosive ingestion. Um, you know, and you could have very deep level burns in the... In, uh, potentially lead to things that we've discussed, like fever, tachypnea, tachycardia, hypotension, shock. You can have long-term, you can have short-term effects where you can have some epiglottitis, um, laryngeal stricture or structure, and lose your airway. Um, and then you can have chronic effects, with, which lead to esophageal strictures. You can have cancer, increased risk of cancer, vocal cord paralysis, or pyloric stenosis. Even. Um, so as they, and they found really that the um, serious injury, although ch children are by far the most likely to ingest, the more serious injuries are commonly correlated with the adults. So they found that kids accounted for 39% of admissions, admissions to the hospital, but only 8% of those um, birds actually required any treatment, where as adults accounted for 48% of admissions, but 81% of those patients required some sort of treatment. So, so um, basically... The, the, you know, esophagoscopy is a useful test, but it's not without its downsides. It's, uh, you know, discomfort, 
cost and risk to the patient just to perform the procedure. Um, so really this ideal of the study would be, can we see, yes, can, who can we avoid doing these scopes on and who do we absolutely need to do these scopes on? So as far as who can we avoid, anybody who's asymptomatic, no asymptomatic had any sort of a positive scope. So that's a nice people. Anybody who doesn't, if you haven't known alkaline ingestion, if they are asymptomatic, they do not need a scope. So you can avoid scopes in those. Um, and then, um, but as far as finding one sign or symptom that is going to give you a 100% yes, the most specific definitely was um, Strider. That was specific in 100% of cases, but it's extremely <laughs> low sensitivity. So it's not going to be your best screening test, especially for patients coming through the emergency department where you're trying to figure out what's going on. As far as the groups, so the, you know, you have to broaden it up a little bit in order to get any sort of sensitivity. And as far as when they found, when they subgrouped their signs and symptoms into groups of four to look for, um, the best group that they found was the group of uh, vomiting, dysphagia, abdominal pain, and oral burns. Those four together... Um, had a sensitivity of 94%, so that's fantastic. A positive predictive value of uh, only 43%, but a negative predictive value of 96%. So if all four of those are negative, you have a pretty good chance that... So I believe that the criteria was at least two of... Oh, uh, yeah, the only, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so if, if you have if, less than two If you have those, less than two of those. So if you only have one of those four, then you'd still have... Yeah, as, as long as... yeah. If you, but if you had... Two or more of those four, then your then your sensitivity is pretty high. You don't have a great positive predictive value, but it's definitely it's a great rule out mm-hmm. test for sure. Um, and then you, so that's the best. And then another thing to keep in mind is that they found was um, the intention behind the ingestion. So if it's accidental, it's um, and they have severe injuries, of course they need a scope, but anybody with a suicidal intention, just purely based on the um, potential intake of larger volumes with the intentional, sui- you know, the intention of committing suicide uh, is cause for concern and um, has a much higher rate of having a severe injury. Um, and any patient, they've also with any sort of systemic system symptoms. So if they're going into shock or they seem to be hemorrhaging, those are ones that need to be managed initially. And then um, a scope is definitely in their very close future to see, to evaluate the extent of their injury. Yeah. Um, still have a few limitations. I think I think the biggest ones from what I, I believe were like, um, how do you really evaluate these symptoms in young kids? You know, you can't ask a two-year-old, are you nauseous? Um, you, you know, you can say, does your they belly hurt? But, but, yeah, they can throw up on you. But, you, you know, but you can't, you know, if, you, know if, you can ask them sometimes if they have tummy pain, but anything less than that, which, you know, they had three months old that have had, their, you know, so how do you do that? And also this kind of dichotomous yes-no variable, like, yeah, maybe I feel a little queasy versus did I throw up ten times over the last hour? You know, like how severe these um, symptoms were. And I think that, I think... Logically, you could follow that more severe symptoms would potentially mean more severe injury, but obviously that wasn't studied in this case. So, yeah. Yeah, this is an interesting study. There were a couple other limitations, like the number, they only got yeah. like 40% of their esophagoscopy reports. And then yeah, they that was a little. Kind of make a whole bunch of statements about the percentages of the ones they got back without mm-hmm. accounting for. The all idea the that most get. of them they didn't actually get back, yeah. so they and made assumptions. Patients didn't follow up at all, even go to seek healthcare. So. Yeah, but I think there's a couple of nice take-homes, and I think you reviewed them very nicely. If you're asymptomatic, you do not need 
it's got uh, your esophagus, esophagus visualized. Um, and it's clearly the suicidal intent increases your risk of having a positive EGD. And I think that that last group, that vomiting, dysphagia, abdominal pain, and oral burns, and the idea that if you have two or more of those, that's a pretty good indicator that you have, that, that I shouldn't say that, is a high sensitivity for detecting mm-hmm. severe esophageal injury, um, is a good one. And I think that kind of goes to, you know, I think clinically we kind of think, do you have signs and symptoms that correlate to your esophagus or stomach? Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a kid who's holding their abdomen, you know, rocking back and forth, that kid's going to get an endoscopy because they probably have burns. Um, if they won't drink anything, they won't drink water, and they have burns in their mouth, all of those things make us think, you know, that a person... I'll tell you that one of the issues, the big issues that we have is that most community hospitals do not have anyone in the hospital who will do a pediatric esophagoscopy. Yeah, exactly. And so much more, uh, there's m- many more issues because now we're talking about, you know, transporting someone for an esophagoscopy. And so, um, these, so these types of rule systems are very helpful because you can use this and say, you know, I have a 96% negative predictive value that this child does not have any significant esophageal yeah. injury. And now I don't have to fly fly them or drive them five hours um, at a cost of $25,000 to the family, et cetera, et cetera. So these types of rule systems are quite helpful, I think. You did mention one thing that I should make a comment about called clinitest tablets, which tend to show up on toxicology board exams and old in old uh, conversations uh, but they don't really uh, they may exist still but clinitest <laughs> I haven't seen them in a long time but clinitest tablets were tablets that you would before I know this is going to sound crazy but <laughs> before there was a capillary blood glucose machine what <laughs> people used to monitor their blood sugar by by monitoring the sugar in their urine and you would have a clinitest tablet, and you would uh, put it in the urine. And the tablet had um, cupric sulfate, and the cupric sulfate would combine with the glucose to make cuprous oxide, which is colored. So that's not the part that's caustic. They actually added sodium hydroxide because the reaction required alkaline, um, uh, an alkaline environment. So you'd have these little tablets that you put in your urine sample. And the idea was, if there's not that much glucose in there, it would be blue, and that's awesome. But if it turned green, then your, you know, your, um, your sugar, your sugar in your urine was a little bit high, and if it turned orange, it was like really high. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but ki- because they were around, if you had a parent with diabetes, these these were around mm-hmm. the house. Kids would ingest mm-hmm. them, and so um, they do show up on these like foreign body in the esophagus and caustic injury um, rule systems where you say like, well, if this, you know, if they ingest a clinitest tablet. So just to clarify what exactly that is, I don't think they, I don't know if they exist anymore. I have never seen, I can't imagine anyone's actually doing that. Um, But that is how you used to check your sugar and make sure you're your sugar was being controlled. It's better than tasting tasting it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So now we have a better idea of sort of who we should try to scope and who has a high risk of esophageal injury. Um, One of our next questions is, 
um, well, first is what can we do about it? And then next is, is there another way to do this that doesn't involve transferring someone five hours to see a you know, pediatric gastroenterologist to get a negative scope to then have to figure out how we're going to get the family back the next day because they flew here in a you know, life flight uh, uh, fixed wing transport. So um, first to tackle the steroid question, Matt Davey, first year toxicology fellow. Yeah, so we've been talking about, you know, who to test, but now kind of talking a little bit more about treatment. And you know, for the last 50, 60 years, there's been a controversy over how to treat them, but specifically, uh, you know, to treat with steroids or not. Um, so this paper, um, the control trial of corticosteroids in children with corrosive injury of the esophagus, attempts to tackle that question. It was done in the 1990s. So at that time, it was you know kind of widely accepted that people would get steroids for caustic injuries of the esophagus, and that was kind of based on a lot of animal data. One study in the 1950s, Span and all, you know, tested mice that uh, you know showed decreased inflammation. There was another cat study that you know showed decreased inflammation with steroids. So. And in the 1990s, it was, you know, thought that this would potentially benefit. So at that time, it was, um, you know, kind of widely recommended. Um, But this study at that time wanted to, you know, take a look, see if steroids actually did improve the course um, of esophageal burns and specifically trying to prevent uh, the complication of, you know, delayed structures. So this was a prospective uh, controlled study. Uh, it involves 18 years, I think, of, uh, of uh, patient data, 1971 to 1988. It involved all patients with a history of caustic ingestions. It excluded uh, ammonia or bleach ingestions just based on the fact that those usually do pretty well. Uh, they came up with 131 patients, all got rigid in, uh, endoscopies, um, and then based on the results of those, they graded them. It's kind of a, the whole grading system is another uh, you know, variable thing. <clears throat> At this point, their grading system was um, a first-degree burn was purely erythema, a second-degree burn was ul- ulceration, sloughing, um, but less than a circumferential burn, and then third-degree was a circumferential burn with sl- sloughing necrosis. Um, so they randomized people based on their uh, medical record number, and they um, randomized them um, to get steroids or no steroids. The steroid group uh, would get two milligrams per kilogram of methylpred IV, and then um, two point five milligrams per kilo PO times fourteen to uh, twenty one days. It's a little bit unclear because in their method section they say that uh, antibiotics were given as well with the steroids. It's unclear to me if everybody got antibiotics or only the steroid group. Um, if it was you know only the steroid group that got antibiotics, I think that would be a, a major flaw because now you're you know it's not a controlled trial only for for steroids. So that would be a big question that I would have. Um, so they scoped everyone, they graded everyone, 
if you had a first degree burn, you got a regular diet and you were treated, you know, as an outpatient. The second and third degree burns got a repeat, um, either barium or scope at, at three weeks. And at that time, if you had no stricture, you're followed up as an outpatient. Um, and then kind of what they went, went on to do, if you had a mild or uh, moderate stricture, you got dilation. Um, if you had a severe one, you had uh, a retrograde uh, dilation, but that's kind of not really the question that we have today. The question's, you know, who went on to get strictures? So the results, like I said, they had 131 uh, patients admitted over those 18 years. The median age was two. Of those 131, they discovered 60 patients with uh, a grade one, two, or three burn. Looking at what kind of substance, we kind of alluded to this, you know, is a solid or liquid worse? They kind of studied uh, that. Figure one shows the different types of uh, caustics ingested. Looking at the actual data, there's no statistic uh, significance, but you can kind of see that the third degree burns in the liquids were, were much more common. So it, it does appear that liquids, you know, at least trended towards a more serious burn. So looking at the question that we have, so of the 31 people who got uh, steroids, 10 of them went on to develop structures, uh, so 10 out of 31 in the steroid group, in the control group, 11 out of 29. So you know, pretty even there, no, definitely no, no difference uh, in that data. Um, kind of interestingly, they, breaking it up on first, second, and third degree burns, 0% of the people in the first degree um, burn category got a stricture. One out of 20 in the second degree burn uh, developed a stricture. That person did get steroids. And then 20 of 21 uh, in the third degree burn group got strictures regardless of you know, steroids or, or no steroids. Uh, and then one other kind of comparison they made was who, who, ended, who had to go on to get their whole esophagus replaced, who had to go to surgery, um, and that was 4 out of 10 of the steroid people who had strictures, and then 7 out of 11 people without steroids, uh, not significant, but a, a potential trend there. The, the numbers are pretty small, 40% in the steroid group and about 70% in the, in the no steroid group. It's always a, a question that, you know, always comes up with these, you know, the risk benefit uh, of any treatment, it's always quoted that, you know, steroids will increase your, um, you know, risk of infection, it could mask infection, it could, you know, make the tissue more friable. So they attempted, you know, just in this very small group, they looked at side effects, and they did note that one person in the steroid group went on to have a brain abscess, whether you can, you know, correlate that uh, to the steroids or not. But they did know. Uh, While on antibiotics. While well, antibiotics, yes. So. And of note, they were, you know, the, you know, you reviewed this, but they were getting weeks of steroids. Right. So, but you're right, they didn't comment on infections, and they didn't comment on hyperglycemia, which we know is a big issue with steroids. So, um, tough to make any comments, so, you know. One group got brain abscess. Right. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say. <laughs> right. So, based on their you know, small um, study, there was no effect um, with steroids, you know, with the risk of developing 
a, uh, a structure. Um, I think what they did find, I think kind of my takeaway point from this was that you know, people with first and second degree burns do great, and you know, a third degree burn um, you know, almost universally does poorly. Um, so there's got to be some you know, middle ground there with the people on the fence, and if you give steroids to those people you know, on the fence, does that make a difference? I think kind of the, some of the limitations with this, like I said, um, you know, if, if you're testing two different therapies, antibiotics and steroids, comparing that against control, you're not really testing just steroids. I think that's a limitation. And I forgot to mention that the you know, clinicians in this study were not blinded, so kind of also um, you know, something that they probably could have easily fixed. Um, so yeah, that was that, that study. Yeah. And, you know, of note, bless you, the, um, grade, the, the grade three group was circumferential, which it depends on your scoring system. You know, in a study we're going to talk about in a little bit, that would be a grade 2B. Uh, so it gets really confusing which grading system they talk about, but it's probably almost easier to just think circumferential or not. Um, in this grade, in this one, that was sort of their grading system, and more um, other grading systems, which I think are used more commonly. And we'll get to when we talk about CAT scans. It's more about the depth, kind of like skin. It's a mucosal, it's submucosal, or it's uh, out, or serosal, or outside of the serosal. So um, that does, those don't quite correlate. But I think the take home here is. Um, Steroids work, <laughs> right. um, and that you do fairly well if you don't have a circumferential burn, right. uh, regardless of steroid use. Great. All right. Um, so then I can go on to talk about a much more recent study that you know again is that is asking the the same question, um, but sorry, a little bit different question, but kind of same testing the, the effect of steroids. So this one is um, high doses of methyl uh, penicillone in the management of caustic esophageal burns. So this was a study out of Turkey, another um, prospective study, looking at a very specific question. So the, our last um, paper was looking at all burns, grade one, two, and three burns. Um, and what that study showed was that you know, the grade one and two do very well, and the threes, you know, universally do poorly. So this this was looking at a very specific burn, the the two B um, esophageal burn. So again, this this is using a slightly different um, scale. In this one, a first degree burn is the same. It's an you know erythema. Um, a little bit different. In this paper, their their um, scale. They have a two A and two B. Two A is kind of mucosal sloughing, weeping, um, but not circumferential. And then a 2B is circumferential. And then a grade 3 is severe necrosis, uh, periesophageal necrosis. Um, so this study was attempting to only look at um, grade 2B um, injuries. So they were able to get uh, 83 kids only with 2B esophageal burns. Uh, all those underwent uh, endoscopy within 24 and 48 hours, and like I said, they excluded all 1, 2A, and 3 uh, burns. 
Everybody in the study got ceftriaxone, ranitidine, and TPN feeds um, for a week and then uh, switched over to POs when they were tolerating POs. And then the study group got high-dose uh, methylpred 1 gram per uh, 1.73 you know, uh, meters squared body surface area uh, for three days only. Uh, everyone was was randomized in the study. The endoscopists were randomized. It was, wasn't clear if the endoscopists and the clinicians were, were the same people, um, if the clinicians were also randomized. And then, so on day 10, everyone got a repeat uh, endoscopy if they were improved. Uh, if they had a 1 or a 2A, they were sent home to follow up as an outpatient. If they had uh, the same or worse, uh, like a two, you know, if they still had a 2B or a 3, or if they're having a lot of symptoms, they were followed up in another three weeks uh, with another uh, either barium upper uh, GI series or an endoscopy. So their results, they enrolled 345 patients, but like I said, only 83 of them had a, a 2V burn. The median age was four. Um, the most common ingestants were you know, oven, uh, oven cleaners, degreasers. Um, interesting, only 3.6% of the people had you know, respiratory symptoms. So pretty low um, incidence of any respiratory symptoms. Um, Looking at, they don't really go into the baseline characteristics, you know, if, if one group was sick or any kind of the, the parameters, except to say that 14 uh, people in the study group and then 20 people in the control group had hemorrhagic gastritis. And I'm just kind of thinking, I was trying to think if, if you have hemorrhagic gastritis, are you sicker or, you know, not sicker if, that, if it's actually getting to your stomach or not, so... But otherwise, they don't really comment on any uh, any other baseline characteristics. So figure one kind of shows their flow chart of the, of the 83 people um, split pretty evenly into 42 and 41 patients. Uh, at that first endoscopy at uh, day 10, 15 people um, in the study group still had a, a 2B or greater burn. 14 people in the control group still had a, a significant burn, uh, so pretty even there. But then when you go down uh, to the follow-up three weeks later, only four people, um, four uh, out of the 42, ended up with a stricture in the steroid group, and then 12 out of the uh, 41 people in the control group went on to uh, have a stricture which is uh, statistically significant. Um, additionally, the steroid group uh, required less TPN, uh, 9.3 days versus uh, 16.8 days uh, in the control group. Looking at adverse events, they didn't know any adverse events um, in either group. So kind of their discussion, they kind of to rationalize why they use three days because a lot of these studies will, like like the last one, will use up to three weeks. Um, and they kind of correlate it with the pathophysiology. They say, you know, in the, in the first, the first, uh, you know, 24 to 72 hours, you have a big inflammatory response. So they were, they were attempting to only block that initial inflammatory response um, and, and not continue the steroids beyond that. Um, 
so um, kind of you know more in their discussion with the decrease in TPN you're you know potentially getting the person out of the hospital much you know 10 days sooner as well um, um, and then let's see and then kind of just looking at their overall rate of um, stricture formation is about 20%, uh, I believe, which is, you know, less than what a lot of other studies have quoted, but, you know, they, they exclude the grade three uh, burns, which is, you know, going to be your highest um, population developing strictures. So I think, kind of in general, is a much better design than the other, you know, controlled trial that we that we're discussing um, I think there's you know potentially a couple um, you know questions I had just about you know whether the actual treating flip uh, physicians were were blinded you know a couple you know questions about the baseline characteristics just making sure that both groups were were the same and I think overall is a, a, a well-designed you know study with uh, you know a and a clear, what looks like a clear benefit to, to steroids in this one very specific group. So I think it's something that we should definitely consider, you know, if we if we come across that that case. Yeah, I mean it's it's a pretty good study. A um, couple of couple of um, pieces of info that I thought were interesting in that they were looking at all emergency department uh, patients who came in. So. 10% of all of the patients had a grade 2 or 3 burn. So a very small percentage of the people who, of the kids who ingest a caustic will have a high-grade esophageal burn. That doesn't mean we should ignore them. <laughs> that means that, uh, just sort of putting it in perspective, that 90% will not have a grade 2 or 3 esophageal burn. Uh, the other one was that there were burns in the oral mucosa in 48% of those who had a grade 2B uh, esophageal burn. So um, just to remember that just because they don't have a burn in their mouth does not mean they don't have a burn in their esophagus. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but this number right around 50% comes paper after paper after paper, um, patients who have these esophageal injuries and have no oral mucosal injury at all. And, you know, I don't really have any great explanation for it. It just seems to happen sometimes. So don't ever let the idea that there's no oral burn guide you away from looking in their esophagus if they have the symptoms that we talked about in the last one. So, yeah, this is interesting. You know, it's like the rebirth, uh, you know, just when you thought steroids were dead for another indication, they, they come back and, um, you know, we'll just wait for the next study to show that they don't work, I guess. <laughs> and so then we'll use them. It does seem like, it does seem it's a good study and it seems like it works. So, you know, in the subset of the population, it does seem reasonable to give steroids to them for right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very, like you say, it's a very small subset. It you know, shouldn't be generalized to, mm-hmm. well, this paper says steroids and burns are good, so give it to everybody. It's, you know, you have to have the endoscopy, have to have this particular grade burn, so you have to be careful with that. Yeah. One thing that I was surprised at was that 8.4% of their patients had to be burns from household bleach. Yeah, I saw that. 
That stopped me for a second. That either means that the history is wrong or they ingested a gallon. Yeah. yeah, I don't have a really good explanation for that either. I was, but I, I think a lot of that type of history is often wrong. Yeah. Because, you know, once you've looked in the esophagus, it doesn't really matter right. what the... So there's probably not going to be a huge amount of history taking and sending people back to the house to get the bottle and bring it in mm-hmm. and then positively it because who you know at that point the damage is done it doesn't really matter I think right. that's important when you get the initial call from home um, so I wonder if some of that is just lost they go, oh it was just bleach yeah you know and it ended up it was actually toilet bowl cleaner or well that, I guess that was my concern is that you know I can see someone calling in to the poison center and saying it was household bleach and mm-hmm. leave them at home thinking they're gonna be totally fine because we don't I really think do that much. happens I think that that happens. You know, it's like I took aspirin or, you know, well, it used to be I took aspirin. Now it's yeah. I took Tylenol. Um, and it ends up being ibuprofen or I took Advil yeah. and it ends up being acetaminophen. Um, I think those things happen all the time. So, you know, the, I think the, the signs and symptoms are yeah. probably more important. I was going to say, I guess that's why it's we, why we reiterate so many times that they have symptoms regardless yeah. of what it is they need to go. There's no rule out. There's not really any way You know, go. there's no like, oh, well, they said it was this, so we shouldn't do anything. You know, that's got to be the follow-up mm-hmm. question. So are they vomiting? Are they have esophageal chest pain? Do they have stomach pain? So... Great. So, you know, the, the controversy will continue over steroids. Um, and at least we've narrowed it down to a little subset. It looks like grade 2B. Basically, if it's circumferential, they get steroids. Um, unless you can prove that it's truly a grade 3, which is um, one of the issues is once you see a circumferential burn, you stop your endoscopy and you mm-hmm. pull back out again because you don't travel through generally uh, circumferential burns. So... Um, some of those grade two Bs may end up being grade threes that we just don't know. So, but the next question is, is there a better way? You know, (laughs) is there a way that we can do this without, as we talked about before, Trump, you know, sending someone in a helicopter, uh, hundreds of miles to see a pediatric gastroenterologist to do that specific scope. So, um, why don't you, uh, uh, take us through the question of CAT scanning. Uh, Jillian, each of the uh, first year talks about The first paper we're looking at is Ryu et al. Looking at caustic injury. Can CT grading system enable prediction of esophageal stricture? This is ClinTox 2010. They give a little intro and in that in caustic ingestion, prevention of esophageal stricture is an important aspect of treatment. And currently, endoscopy is recommended for determining prognosis in these patients. There are risks with endoscopy, including bleeding and perforation. And one issue is that they can't be performed necessarily in the ED, and they can't be performed at a place that can't do pediatric endoscopy, for example. So, as was just mentioned, may result in transfers of patients. And they also note one prior study looking at CT for demonstrating esophageal wall thickening in caustic injury. And their objective here was to determine the grade of esophageal damage using CT and to assess correlation between esophageal damage on CT and the presence of stricture on esophagography. And they wanted to attempt to establish a correlation between the CT grading score and an endoscopic grading score. Their methods was a retrospective chart review of 61 patients who were admitted to a hospital for caustic ingestion in South Korea, and this was between 98 and 2008. 
And their inclusion criteria was that they had a CT chest within 72 hours of the caustic ingestion and then had a sophagography to assess for stricture prior to discharge. CTs were performed with oral and IV contrast and uh, the esophagography with barium contrast and with stricture defined as a filling defect or an extraluminal compression. There were 12 patients who were excluded for various reasons, uh, failure of the CT, delay uh, to greater than 72 hours, missing data, death, or transfer, and they ended up with a final end of 49. And their grading system when doing CTs Grade 1 was no swelling of the esophagus. Grade 2 was some edematous wall thickening greater than 3 millimeters with no periesophageal soft tissue infiltration. Grade 3 was the same thing, wall thickening, but with periesophageal soft tissue infiltration. And grade 4 was the above plus some blurring of the tissue interface or localized fluid collection around the esophagus or the descending aorta. And there were two experienced blinded radiologists who were doing the reads. And then a grading system for the EGD was zero normal, one with some edema and hyperemia of the mucosa, 2A is superficial localized ulceration, friability, and blisters, 2B is 2A plus um, ulceration, and then a 3A is multiple ulcerations, necrosis, and discoloration, and then 3B was extensive necrosis. And what they did was compare the CT grade 1 and 2 injuries with the grade 3 and 4 injuries, and then also compared grade 1 to 3 injuries with grade 4 injuries, so kind of clumping the patients into two different types of groups. And essentially, their, their approach was to look at area under the curve, which was calculated to determine how predictable are these scoring systems for the development of esophageal stricture. And in looking at 49 patients, these were adult patients with so a mean age of 52 years, 32 were suicidal, 35 of those patients uh, was acidic ingestion, 14 were alkali, and the range of volume was anywhere from 10 to 640 mLs. 26 of those 49 patients had a sore throat, 8 of them had epigastric pain, and 6 had some sort of respiratory issues. There were 4 of them with altered mental status, 3 with vomiting, 2 with hematemesis, and then 7 who end up with bleeding or perf. All of them got an H2 blocker and a PPI, Um, All of them were NPO and got IV fluids, and then about half of them, 53%, got an NG tube post-endoscopy. 43% uh, got antibiotics, and 29% uh, got IV hydrocortisone. So the median time from ingestion to CT was 17 hours. And when looking at the CT grades, the grade 3 was most common, about 41% of patients. 28% had a grade 4, 18% had a grade 2, and there were 12% of patients who had a grade 1. And then the mean days to esophagography, so sort of the confirmatory test, was 28 days. And on that study, there was esophageal stricture in 34%. And among these who had stricture, there were 13 who were grade 4 on CT, three who were grade three on CT, and one who was a grade two. The EGDs were done a median of 12 hours from ingestion and were 2A and 37%, so most commonly 2A, 3A and 25%, 2B and 16%, and grade one and 14%. Now, of the 17 patients who developed stricture, six of them were 3A, four of them were 2A, and three of them were 2B on 
EGD. So if, uh, in table four, uh, we look at essentially the sensitivity and specificity of CT grading and note that, that those uh, numbers were increased when comparing grades, clumping grades one through three together and comparing those to grade four. And when you did that, um, the sensitivity and specificity were 81% and 95% for the CT grading. And figure three shows your receiver operator curves for the two grading systems, so CT versus endoscopy. And the area under the curve for CT grading was 0.9, which was larger than that for endoscopic grading. The area under the curve for endoscopy was 0.79. They were not significantly different, though. The p-value was 0.08. And this is just where you look at the, the area under the curve of 1 means you have a perfect test in terms of accuracy. So in their discussion, they talk about um, that damage to the esophagus, as seen on CT, tends to correlate with more severe grades. They note that CT was performed at a median of 17 hours, which is a bit delayed, and so this may have allowed for more time for detectable injury to occur. So rather than just doing a CT right after the injury, there's some time when you may be able to detect some of these abnormalities. They do know that CT is less invasive, um, and they note that this, all of this requires a prospective study and a larger patient sample. They note that strictures can take weeks to develop, so they, the esophagography, sort of the confirmatory test done at 28 days, may have missed some strictures, and there was not long-term follow-up here, so we can't say for sure um, who developed strictures here. So the next study uh, is Bister. Um, this is uh, and Page, ClinTox 2011, looked at early endoscopy or CT and caustic injuries, and they note controversy over the use of early endoscopy and caustic injuries. Note that that is an invasive test and of unclear diagnostic value, um, and that it has a clear role, but really when you have an established severe caustic injury. So this is kind of for um, further evaluation of those patients. They note that most case reports of severe injuries have significant uh, clinical findings on presentation. They also note that Ryu et al., the first paper that we discuss, included only severe caustic injuries, and most were strong acids and strong lies. And that may have had to do with where that was done. So it was a study done in South Korea, and it is mentioned here that potentially in um, Western countries that we may be looking more at bleach, ammonia, and various detergents that may not be quite as severe in terms of the injury caused. And they, they quote a study, Tohada et al., who reported that when it comes to these kind of less severe ingestants, that, that generally those patients do a little bit better. They ended up looking at recalculating the review results um, and note that if there's an absence of grade three or grade four, that there's a negative predicted value of 93%, meaning that few strictures will be missed in patients with a grade one or two on CT, is their interpretation there. And they say, considering the risk of perforation, CT offers at least a non-invasive option to define the risk of stricture. And then the third study uh, we looked at here was Clintox 2013, Lurie et al., looking at the role of chest and abdominal CT in assessing the severity of acute corrosive ingestion. And they mentioned that, in general, the management of, of these ingestions are airway, 
management, IV fluids, and then endoscopy within 12 to 24 hours. They note that corticosteroids are controversial, which we've discussed, and that antibiotics should be used when you have an identified infection. Endoscopy is noted to be crucial for determining the need for early surgery, so these are severe cases that may require surgery, and for grading for acute and long-term complications. They note that CT can detect upper GI wall lesions, so they essentially you can look for extralimal air as a sign of perf. They also note that it's non-invasive and readily available, so in the ED and no matter what uh, age patient that you're dealing with here. So this study was a retrospective chart review of adults, 2012 to, uh, sorry, 2000 to 2012, and they looked for ICD-9 codes for corrosive exposure, and then included patients who had both a CT and an endoscopy within 48 hours of admission. And they also had a blinded radiologist who reviewed the CTs and used the grading system of zero normal, one for edema, two is a grade one, so some edema plus some soft tissue infiltration, three is a grade two plus free air. And then when they did endoscopy, grades are zero for normal, one for edema hyperemia, 2A for friability, hemorrhage, erosion, blisters, exudates, and ulcerations. Um, 2B is essentially a 2A plus deeper ulceration, and then the 3s deal with necrosis. So 3A is some scattered necrosis, and 3B is extensive necrosis. And they looked at 23 patients, about half were female, with a mean age of 43 years, uh, with a range of 18 to 87 in age. And we're about 50% acids, 26% alkali, and 13% household bleach. And uh, 78% of those were intentional. 30% of patients got an X-lap. 12 ended up on a vent, and 5 patients died. And they noted that endoscopy grading was higher than the CT grading in 61% of patients. They had um, eight patients who had an endoscopy grade of three and who had a CT grade of one. And of the five patients who died, one patient had a CT grade of zero, normal. One had, uh, sorry, two patients had a CT grade of one and then died. Two patients had a CT grade of three and then died. And of those patients' endoscopies, uh, of the five who died, two had a 3A, one had a 3B, and then two were unable to scope. They had too much edema, so the, the procedure was unable to be completed. They also note that there were radio, ED radio, radiologists and then study radiologists, and that they agreed in about 56.5% of cases. Which is amazing. So um, for a grade 3 CT, so this is a study looking at more, quite more severe patients. For grade 3 CT, the sensitivity to predict mortality... Uh, point or 60 and specificity 94 with a positive predictive value of 75 and a negative predictive value of 75. So they they concluded essentially that, that CT underestimated the severity of injury. And again, this is looking at quite severe cases. 67, they note that 66.7% of those who had endoscopy grade 3A or 3B, so with either scattered necrosis or diffuse necrosis, had a CT grade of 1. And they note that uh, CT had a higher positive predictive value, so looking for true positives, but a lower negative predictive value, so, so true negatives. And the, the problem here is that if you're doing CT because you want to be confident and say this patient doesn't have an injury, you're, 
you're kind of looking for a true negative. If, if you, you know, you say this is a low score on their CT, you want to be able to confidently say that's what you're dealing with. So that's that's kind of the the big concern here. They also note that the the review study, the first one we talked about, studied longer term effects. So stricture is out at basically a month on esophagography versus this study that looked at very acute injuries and short-term things like X-lab and death, and they looked at mortality rates. So again, sort of bit very different ways of, of looking at this. And the question is, you know, if you're using CTs, and my, my sense is that we might consider CT in the hopes that we could prevent somebody from having to get scoped. And so it's more useful to know how this works in the milder cases. You know, the ones who are so edematous you can't even scope them and go on to die, um, you know, these are, this is less useful information. However, it is somewhat concerning that in these very severe injuries, CT, where we think you might see something, CT didn't do that well. And so we're left kind of <laughs> juggling two different sets of, of information here and trying to figure out what, what to do. Yeah, it does seem that maybe someday we'll have some, you know, specific reasons to do one or the other. It does seem that when you do look at a milder group of people, you know, it, you know, with your pretest probability, if we could combine it with a pretest probability, you know, if you have a negative, a negative CT is a ninety-three percent negative predicted value. If you have a low chance already, then it might be a good test to eliminate the need to do a scope in, a, in that type of scenario. Um, that has yet, that study has yet to be done, <laughs> so I don't think we're there yet, although there is a prospective study looking at EGD and um, uh, CAT scan right now through Toxic, so we'll see, that might shed some light on it. Uh, but yeah, I don't think it answered our specific question, although I think, you know, CAT scan might be a reasonable thing to do in certain circumstances, and um, whether we can do it in lieu of endoscopy, uh, that's a big question. But they, I think they both bring different things to the table. Makes more sense to me that endoscopy would be more predictive of strictures, and that CAT scan would, be, would give you a better view of the periesophageal tissue. You know, someone who has uh, you know, caustic injury and swelling in the periesophageal tissue, you know, that person might be, uh, have a certain, uh, might have a certain path that's quite different from someone who has a perfectly normal cirrhosis, um, but with mucosal injury on their, um, on their cat skin, and that person may then need a endoscopy. You know, someday we might have some stepwise approach where we then look at the endoscopy to determine what their risk of strictures is. So we'll see. I think we're not quite there yet on the CAT scan. I, you know, they all, they also mentioned the risk of radiation, which I think is a significantly bigger issue in young children than in you know, an older adult. Um, but potentially, we could um, come up with a eventually a, a pathway where you can. You know, use one of the other or in series if necessary, but uh, to decrease uh, the number of endoscopies that we do. We'll see. I don't think we're there yet. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.
Cool. Well, all right. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, and we will see you or hear you or you'll hear us next time.